The following audio is from Christ Presbyterian Church in Nashville, Tennessee, where our mission is to follow Christ and His mission of loving people, places, and things to life. For more information about Christ Presbyterian Church, please visit ChristPres.org. Our scripture reading today is from Psalm 133. Behold, how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. It is like the precious oil on the head, running down on the beard, on the beard of Aaron, running down on the collar of his robes. It is like the dew of Hermon, which falls on the mountains of Zion. And there the Lord has commanded the blessing, life forevermore. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you, Michael. All right, well, before we get into this, just wanna mention a couple of things. Uh, one is just, I want to mention giving again. Um, it's been a part of, if you're, if, if you're supporting the ongoing work of the church uh, financially, the way you can give is you can go to christprez.org slash give, or you, there's an offering basket out on the table out there. Also want to mention that we are moving to two services on September 13th. So that is two weeks from now. Uh, we're going to have a 9 o'clock and a 1030. Uh, so the services will be... Uh, about an hour and five minutes each. At the nine, nine o'clock service, we will have the kids minute like we had here. That will also be the service that we live stream. And then we will not have the kids minute at the 1030 service. So, uh, so those are the two services we're going to have uh, starting in just two weeks. That's also going to be our fall kickoff uh, Sunday where we begin a new sermon series uh, called Life Together, uh, which is a study of Second Timothy, but really it's also focused on studying the local church. What is the local body of Christ, uh, which is what that letter is all about. And so I'm really looking forward to uh, walking through Second Timothy. It's going to be a joy to do that. If you have your Bibles or your, you know, app, uh, Psalm 133 is the passage that we're looking at. It's a uh, get in and get out kind of psalm. It's three verses. It's quick. Um, And it's got a lot of of range in the sense that it refers all the way back to Moses. uh, And it it talks about um, life forevermore and all this. So it's got quite a range uh, that's in here. But really the focus of this psalm is on unity. Uh, Let me open us with a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we bow in your presence, and we pray that your word would be our rule, that your spirit would be our teacher, and that your greater glory would be our supreme concern, and we pray this through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. So I saw uh, on my social media feed uh, this week this, this quote, which just resonated with me to no end. Maybe it does with you too. It said this, the next time... Somebody sends you an email or a text saying, we need to talk. Reply with, yes, we absolutely do need to talk. That way, you won't be the only one living in fear. <laughs> you know that feeling, right? Hey, can we, can I, can we talk? And you just think, what's coming? Nobody likes to feel that. Right? Nobody likes to feel that. Nobody likes to feel relationally separated or that something relationally is broken. This psalm is about that. It's about unity. And he says out of the gate, unity, 
is good. It's a good thing. Behold how good, how pleasant it is for brothers and sisters to dwell in unity. It's a good thing. It feels good, right? That's what it means to be pleasant. For something to be pleasant means that it not only is good, but that it feels good. When we talk about biblical unity, we have a little bit of navigating to do because we bring definitions of unity to that word that may not be the biblical understanding of unity. Let me explain. When we're talking about unity here, is, is what we're talking about really the feeling of, of being at peace due to the absence of all conflict? Is that what unity is? It's peace because there is no conflict. Or does Christian unity serve a greater purpose than just a feeling of peace because of the absence of conflict? So let's jump in and let's just unpack this psalm. The opening verse says, living together in unity is a good and pleasant thing. It's rich. It's pleasurable. And we all want pleasure. But there are two kinds that we seek. There's the kind of pleasure that we seek only for ourselves. There's pleasure that we engage in only for ourselves, which could range from something like eating a bowl of ice cream after midnight to a one-night stand, right? There's a range of things that people will do to obtain a feeling of pleasure. But there's another kind, and that is the kind that someone seeks as a part of belonging to a community, the goodness of belonging with others. And that kind of pleasure requires something of us, more than just indulging appetites. It requires vulnerability. It requires trust. It requires, as Oswald Chambers defined it, a laying down of our right to ourselves, right? Self-serving pleasure does little to promote true unity. In fact, a lot of people who seek unity through self-serving pleasure, what their unity looks like, what achieving unity looks like is shrinking their world so that it only has in it people who leave them alone or agree with them. So self-serving pleasure does little to promote true unity. In fact, it often works against it. By the way, are we not right now in a time where unity is very hard to come by? Especially if you're looking at any message that's coming through a screen. Very polarized. Very difficult time right now for unity. Finding unity with others is it's hard, isn't it? It's, it's, it's an achievement. It's an achievement to find unity with others. And, and so it's something that we celebrate when we have to say, look, this is good. This is good to have unity because it's hard and because it's rare. This psalm says, let me tell you how good and how rare unity actually is. You know what really good unity is like, pleasurable unity is like? You know what it's like? You ready? It, I mean, I don't need to even tell you this. It's like oil running down Aaron's beard, <laughs> right? That's what it's like. I mean, how great is that? You got to love the Old Testament, right? The Old Testament gives us things like this. It's, it's like the precious oil in the head running down on the beard, on the beard of who? Of Aaron, 
Oh, of Aaron. What does that mean? Because what's happening here, it sounds very strange to our ears. In fact, it sounds messy. It sounds like you want to be really, really careful how you do that load of laundry, right? Lest you ruin everything else. But to the original reader, they would have said, it is like that. It is like that. Because what this image is recalling is it's recalling the time that the Lord set apart Moses' brother Aaron to serve as a priest over the people of God. And it was this holy moment where Aaron is anointed, he's consecrated, and what it is, is it's a picture of God saying, I'm going to care for you top to bottom. I'm going to care for your situational problems. I'm going to care for your spiritual needs. It's, it's this consecration. It's a picture of God caring for his people. And how's he doing it? He's doing it through the lives of other people. He's setting Aaron apart and he's saying he's going to be a priest. In fact, there's going to be through him a priesthood. And what this priesthood is going to do is it's going to be this beautiful picture of, of people who will exist in your life for the purpose of doing what? Of speaking truth, of, of listening to your sin, not from a position of condemnation, from a, but from a posture of let's work through that together, of people who are going to offer challenges to us when we're walking a road that isn't good for us. It's a picture of people who will lead one another to the altar of God, right? And so this image of the oil running down Aaron's beard is the consecration of a priest. It's telling us unity before God is a holy thing because it makes us a priesthood to one another. And we say, oh, that's good. Well, that's not all, right? Because it's also like the dew of Hermon. I mean, you know what that means? I mean, remember, Israel was a desert. It was a dry land. And I've mentioned in this sermon series before how when I was in Israel just a few years back, we were driving through, and it was, it was uh, the harvest season for the grapes, uh, which is called a vendage. I just like the word. I'm giving that to you for free. The harvest of grapes is called a vendage. Kids, you can use that later. But we were driving and we would see these fields of just, of just uh, rows and rows of grapevines that were just heavy under the weight of these purple grapes. And it was beautiful to look at. And, and our, our guide, who was an Israeli, uh, would look at them and he would say, just, just can you see the fields are covered in water? The fields are covered in water. And that's the idea that, there's, that it's a dry and thirsty land. And he's saying what unity is like is it's like water in a dry and thirsty land. It's opulent. It's this raining down on us. An image saying true unity really is a good thing. And it's a good thing that comes in a mysterious way. It comes from above, this dew, where you wake up in the morning and it's just there. It's there because God gave it. So in summary, what he's saying is here's how good unity is. Unity is like a priesthood of all believers that God is giving to us that wouldn't otherwise exist, but he gives it to us because he loves us. And then verse 3 says, so for there or therefore, whenever you see a therefore in the Bible, you ask the question, what is it 
therefore, right? That's a good, a good way of, of using that word when it appears. Same for for there, uh, which is the same basic idea. But what he's saying is in God-given unity, what does God do? He blesses us. What does he bless us with? Well, he blesses us with experiences which echo the life to come. For there the Lord has commanded the blessing life evermore. So eternal blessing is contained in true unity among the people of God. That's how good it is. He blesses us with eternal things. What eternal things are we talking about here? Well, we're talking about things like love. We're talking about things like affection. When there is unity, there is affection. There is trust. There is the counsel and security of God's word. There is the capacity for us to believe and trust and lean in to the proverb that says wounds from a friend can be trusted. Right? What else is here? It's the love of Christ extended through the hands of his bride. And all of these things, love, affection, trust, counsel and security of God's word, the love of Christ extended through the lives of others, all of these things are a foretaste of the pleasure that we will know for all eternity in the presence of the maker and the lover of our souls. I mean, it's really amazing when you look at the definition of unity that he's giving us here. He's saying what unity is, is it's a foretaste of the peace and joy that you were meant to know and enjoy forever. All these things are a foretaste of that. And so the sort of unity that we're called to is, is really, that we're called to here, is really described in 1 Corinthians 13, that great chapter on love, because I think you can, you can almost treat the word unity and love as synonyms here, because is it not the case that true unity is patient, it's kind, it doesn't envy, it isn't arrogant, it does not insist on its own way, it rejoices with the truth, it bears all things, it hopes all things, and it endures all things. True unity looks like love. It looks like, and, and, and love looks like unity. It's kind of a cyclical thing. Unity looks like love, love looks like unity. And I pray this morning, and I prayed even as I was preparing this message, that the Lord would give us hearts to hear this, because it's a hard thing. It's a hard thing to receive. Because for some of us, when we lay our heads down at night or we have a moment where our thoughts are not preoccupied with other things, our minds can drift to the conflicts that exist in our lives. We can start rehearsing and rehashing conversations with people that feel undone, things we wish we had the nerve to say or the opportunity to say. We can go to some dark places when it comes to broken relationships in our lives. And I want to ask the question, is there anyone that you are at odds with now? Because if there is, I'll tell you this, you feel how unpleasant that is. It's not good, right? It can be a consuming thing for you. Maybe it was silly how it started. You said something they didn't like. They said something you didn't like. They said something that you took to be something you didn't like. Maybe they, you know, you know how it works. Um, but consider the way that you've been loved and as much as you are able 
move toward that person in the same humility and love. I know it can be complicated, and I know that there... I know that not all broken relationships are the kind where it is wise or right or healthy for us to be the ones to move forward toward reconciliation in the case of abuse and things like that. I want to make sure that I say that. But not all conflict is that, right? And it can be complicated because there's, there's conflict that we avoid, and sometimes what it needs is it just needs time. It needs, it needs a cup of coffee, <laughs> right? A broken relationship that just needs the length of time that it takes to drink a cup of coffee or maybe a phone call. And maybe what the Lord is calling you to with this passage is to seek that out. One of the fun things about preaching uh, that I do every week, having been somebody who's also listened to sermons most of my life, is when I preach a sermon, I, here's what I know. I know that the Lord will use sermons that I preach in ways that I cannot even anticipate. I know that I could pour my heart and soul into a three-point message where every point starts with the same letter and the illustrations are fantastic. Maybe we talk about NASA building a rocket and then we're talking about um, 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 you know, something from the Old Testament and then I'm taking you into how this Greek word is used and I'm, you know, and, and I'm talking about a piece of art as I want to do. And I can pour myself into that and that may land nowhere with you, but I may say something off the cuff that the Spirit of the Lord may tap you on the shoulder and say, follow that thread a little bit further. And if, if you've sat in sermons, you know what I'm talking about, right? You know what I'm talking about. I, you, if I were to ask you, what are, what, name one thing that you heard in a sermon that really shook you, that really was transformative for you, and then we were to go to that pastor and say, do you remember saying this? Most of the time that pastor would say, I don't even know if that was in my notes, right? That's just how it works. But maybe what the Lord is doing for you with this passage is he's saying, look, you've nurtured this conflict for so long that you feel in your mind like it's an irreconcilable difference when maybe all you need is a phone call or a text asking for a cup of coffee. Why does it matter that we seek unity? Unity is a good and important thing to pursue, and the reason for that is this, and this is what I want to land with, what I want us to hear. Christian unity is important because, brothers and sisters, we have work to do. We have work to do. Unity is not just so that we can go to bed feeling like I'm not disagreeing with anybody. Nobody's mad at me. That's great when that's the case, but unity is deeper than that. We have, as the people of God, a mission We've been given a great commission to go and proclaim Christ to all the nations. Every one of us has that mission. And how can we do that if our testimony, if our lives, if looking at us is just a picture of people who disagree with each other over dumb things, right? And maybe we don't feel that they're dumb, but if we have stacks and stacks of things where we say, if you're not in this camp, I have no place for you in my life. Thank God that Jesus did not conduct his ministry in that way, in the way that we do. In fact, I would say it as strongly as this, and I'm going to back it up with Scripture. We have an ethical responsibility to pursue unity because we have an ethical responsibility as witnesses to bear witness to what we know is true. 
So we have an ethical responsibility to speak the truth. The Apostle Peter, he tied the significance of unity to our witness to the world. And right now, when I look at the witness of the world in the church, what I see is that we are pretty divided. We're a pretty divided group. And Peter wrote this. This is 1 Peter 3, verses 8 and 9, and then verse 15, which is a part of that, uh, that thought. He says this, Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. For to this you were called, that you may obtain a blessing. In your hearts, this is jumping over to 15, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. See, Peter is not simply telling these believers what to do. He's telling them who to be. He's telling them who to be. Who, and he specifically, he's telling them who to be one another and then also who to be to those who oppose them. May we have ears to hear this. Who are we to be to one another from this passage? He opens the text with five imperatives leading off with unity. The five imperatives are this. Have unity of mind, sympathy, love for your brothers and sisters, a tender heart, and a humble mind. And what he's doing, he's using actually an artistic literary device here. Uh, what he's doing is he's, is he's building an apex with these five imperatives, meaning that the first one and the last one deal with how we think, the second and the fourth deal with how we feel, and the third, the middle one, the apex, the point, deals with how we love. And so it's an artistic way of instructing the whole person, how we think, how we relate, how we love. And so what he's saying is he's saying we're to be united in our minds, humbly serving one another. So that's, that's one. That's how we, how we think. We are to be sympathetic and tenderhearted. That's how we relate, willing to enter into one another's struggles, sympathize with their point of view. And then at the apex of that is we're to love one another well. That's who Christians are to be to one another. People who are united in our minds, humbly serving one another, people who are able to enter into one another's struggles and sympathize and be tenderhearted. And what that looks like as it comes to a peak is people who love one another in a selfless way. We're to love one another well. And we look at that and we say, that would be good. Look at how good and how pleasant that would be when that's our witness. And conversely, look at how miserable it is when we fail at loving others above ourselves. It's just it's a miserable place to be. So toward one another, that's the apex, all leading to love. Toward those who oppose believers, Peter goes directly to Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, and he says, look, don't repay evil for evil or insult for insult. I don't even know where to begin with that one, right? Because it looks like everywhere I turn, I'm seeing people repay evil for evil and insult for insult over lines that will be obliterated when the kingdom of God is ushered in. And I see this happening within the church 
as much or more so than outside the church. And what, what Peter is saying here is he's saying, a rule for life, bless. Bless. Bless those who? Who oppose you. Bless those who oppose you for what you believe. Why? Well, because before you believed, you were hostile toward the gospel too. And when you believed, what did you do? You obtained God's blessing. And it's only right then to extend that blessing to others. You and I were never meant to be the gospel's destination. It was never meant to just come to us and stop. That's what I mean when I say we have work to do. The gospel was never meant to just come to us and stop. It was meant to come to us and then pass through us to others. We're meant to pass along the blessing that we have received. We're meant to proclaim it. And this is our ethical responsibility as followers of Jesus Christ. Why is it an ethical responsibility? Because we're witnesses to it. And we're witnesses who are called to testify. And when you are a witness who is called to testify, guess what you are obligated to do? Tell the truth. Tell the truth. And we won't be able to stand up under the pressure a godless world levies against us unless unity is what we're after. Unless we're pursuing unity. Unless unity leads the way. And so what Peter calls us to is peculiar. It's really strange to the ears of the world because what he's saying is our testimony for Christ is really an ethical matter. Your testimony about Christ is not yours to keep. The gospel doesn't just change what we think. It doesn't just bring a bunch of new ideas into our lives. It changes who we are. In Christ, we become people with a purpose a chief end to glorify God and enjoy him forever. And so we become then people who are joined to Christ in such a way that nothing in all creation can ever separate us from his love. And so when Christ calls believers to bear witness to him, we have an ethical obligation to obey that call, to respond to that call. And one mark of that obedience is that we pursue unity, like Jesus prayed about in John 17, that we would be people who would seek to be one with each other as he and the Father are one. Here's the truth about that. It will cost you. It will cost you something. It won't cost you anything you weren't already given, but it will cost you something. Because it's not unity to demand that everybody agree with you. It's not unity to demand that everyone take your position on issue X, issue Y, and issue Z. And that means what it costs us is humility. We have to be willing to say, we may not see eye to eye on things, but that doesn't necessarily mean that in the eyes of God you're wrong or that I'm right. It could be that I'm wrong, and I need to learn, and I need to have humility to receive but God calls us to declare our allegiance to the king of creation. That's where our allegiance belongs. And to tell the truth about how we came to be citizens of his kingdom. If you're a Christian, you're not a journalist telling somebody else's story. 
you're a witness to something. You're proclaiming your own story of God's redeeming grace to an otherwise hopelessly lost world. The call to dwell in unity costs us something. The right to feel superior. Listen, this does not mean you can't have views. In fact, you must have views, right? You must think through what does it mean to live as a follower of Christ in this world as a witness to him how does that affect how I navigate my relationships? How does it navigate how I vote? How does it navigate how I participate in systems, of, of, in, in systems that our society has built for the care and the betterment and the, and, the, and, the, and the promotion of the well-being of others and myself? How do I live in that? You can have views, but if our views require us to look at entire cross-sections of people as not only uh, people not only outside the church but also within her courts as lesser than us or somehow unworthy of basic kindness and the dignity that is owed to all the image bearers of God, I don't know a simpler way to say it than we're the problem. Unity looks like being priests to one another. as graphic an image as the oil running down Aaron's beard, that moment of his consecration. What does being priest to one another look like? Speaking truth, hearing sins, offering challenge, leading one another to the altar of God. It looks like humility. It looks like a desire to love others in the way Jesus said was the greatest kind of love, and that was the love of laying down our lives for a friend. Unity has a purpose. That's the point. Unity is not just a feeling, it has a purpose, it has a function. It has a mission to bear witness to the mercy and the grace of Jesus Christ. If the unity that you're after is to rid your life of people who bother you, you're doing it wrong. But the kind of unity we're called to has the purpose of gathering together to bear witness to the mercy and grace of Christ in a world that so desperately needs it. And when that's happening, man, look at how good and how pleasant that is. Amen? Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word being living and active. I thank you that uh, when we read a passage like this from the Psalms that calls back to the days of the Exodus, the application of the words are very relevant to us here uh, in, in the days of, of the 21st century. Uh, Lord, it's three verses, this call to unity, and it requires so much humility and so much open-handedness uh, and so much uh, willingness to examine our own hearts toward other people. And Lord, if... if if, if you don't do a work in our hearts to soften us, uh, to release our grip on our demand to be right, uh, then not only will we fail at unity with others and with one another in the body of Christ, uh, but we will, we will misunderstand uh, the reason why we need you in the first place, that you came to intercede for us because our hearts are so prone 
to misread the universe and are so prone to gather and accumulate only for ourselves. And so, Lord, help us. We thank you for your kindness. We thank you for your mercy and grace. It's in your name, Jesus, we pray. Amen.